Hi, and welcome to the Breastfeeding Medicine Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dr. Ann Eglash. I'm a clinical professor in the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health. I'm also a board-certified lactation consultant and a co-founder of the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. And I'm Karen Bodnar. I am an assistant professor of pediatrics at Harbor UCLA Medical Center and a general pediatrician. I'm also a board-certified lactation consultant. And this podcast is sponsored by the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. Just so you know, the content of our podcasts does not necessarily reflect official policies or protocols of the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. Are you ready to go? Hi, Karen. How's it going? Great. How have you been? Pretty good. Good. I think we have some interesting topics today to discuss. So you're going to talk first about cup feeding and bottle feeding in the NICU. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Great. Correct. Go for it. So I chose a study um, about cup feeding in the NICU this week. And cup feeding is something that I talk to providers and parents about frequently because I prefer to avoid introducing artificial nipples to babies who are still learning to breastfeed if possible. Um, cup feeding, in case some of our listeners are not familiar with it, is done by holding the baby in a, a semi-upright position, um, supporting the head and back, and then placing a small cup. Sometimes people use a, um, a medicine cup. Um, or there are these great little cups called Foley cups that we had in one of the hospitals where I worked. And just touching it to the baby's bottom lip and allowing um, her to lap or sip the milk from it. So you're not really pouring it into the baby's mouth. Um, You're letting them control the flow. And this method's been used for a long time, and previous studies have demonstrated that cup-feeding infants have a higher rate of exclusive breastfeeding uh, discharge from the NICU. However, some previous studies um, concluded that um, cup-feeding prolonged hospital stays. And so um, in the most recent issue of the Journal of Human Lactation um, from May 2014, there was a study titled Effective Cup Feeding and Bottle Feeding on Breastfeeding in Late Preterm Infants, a Randomized Controlled Study. And that was by Dr. Yilmaz et al., um, and they are from Turkey. And this study included 522 um, preterm infants in three NICUs in Turkey. The babies were between 32 and 35 weeks gestation, Um, and I just have to say at this point that in the USA, we generally consider late preterm to be 34 to um, the end of the 36th week of gestation, so um, maybe it's not exactly the same definition that we would use, but they aren't teeny tiny preemies, Um, and these babies were only fed by intermittent gastric tube prior to being enrolled in the study. They were then randomized to either a cup-fed group or a bottle-fed group and um, allowed to breastfeed whenever their moms were were present. Um, The nurses were feeding them, and also the parents were trained to feed them, um, and they followed them throughout the hospitalization and then um, followed them up at home. And infants in the cup-fed group were more likely to be exclusively breastfed at Um, hospital discharge, as well as at three and six months post-discharge. And in addition, this study found there were no significant differences in the length of hospital stay 
in weight gain in the hospital or in length of time of each feeding or problems with the feedings. Interesting. Um, the result, yeah, it was. And, you know, one of the things that I found interesting um, about this study was that in Turkey, the exclusive breastfeeding rate for all term and preterm infants at six months is around 47% compared to the USA where we have about 10%. Oh, and so in this study at the six-month mark, the um, exclusive breastfeeding rate for the bottle-fed group was 42%, but the babies who had been in the cup-feeding group, it was 57% exclusive at six months. So that was pretty mind-boggling to me. It was awesome. Um was there like a was there any measurement of the babies who were being cup fed getting to the breast earlier and becoming exclusively breastfed earlier than babies who were bottle fed? That's a really good um, question, and it wasn't specifically addressed um, in the study the way it was written. I felt like there were um, definitely a number of questions that I was left with in terms of even whether or not these babies had been to the breast at all prior to entering the study, it said, you know, they were all fed by gastric tube. But sometimes when people write studies, you know, they mean for supplementation, but various NICUs allow babies to go to the breast at very young age. Some make moms wait until they're 30 weeks or 32. They're, we talked about this in an earlier podcast, how there are sort of some really random rules in different NICUs about when it's considered safe for babies to um, first attempt to breastfeed and right. you know, when they're when they have the um, maturity to do that and so that wasn't unfortunately covered so was there any evidence was there any um, information shared about how long they even use those supplementation tools no it didn't say it simply stated that um, if the amount of expressed breast milk was not sufficient and formula was supplemented um, instead. And and whenever I talk about supplementation, I always like to remind people that supplementation is not a synonym for formula. Right. Obviously, these babies were preferentially um, supplemented with um, breast milk. They did state that when moms were there and present and breastfed, if the baby still seemed hungry afterwards, um, then they would supplement them with whichever of these methods they were using at that time, in addition to using it um, whenever the moms were unavailable. So do you think that many NICUs in the United States are using cup feeding anymore? Because I have not heard many people talking about cup feeding at all in the last few years in the United States. Um, you know, I would say that it's hard. It's highly dependent on the attending, not just the NICU, but where I trained, for example, um, at University of Florida, we would, you know, the attendings rotate on and off of service every two or four weeks. And when certain people would come on, all of the orders would be written one way and then someone else would come. And so um, I would say there, there isn't a strong trend to head this direction. Um, for sure, but there there are still people doing it. Yeah, I, I just I, yeah, I would like to find out more about that. I wonder if there are some statistics we could look into that. Maybe bring it to another podcast because I feel I'm like have to do a study now with a survey. 
Right. <laughs> because I feel like it was very much talked about like 10 years ago. And there was a lot of interest in terms of whether or not cup feeding should be um, sort of the mainstream way of supplementing babies. And then and then there was some talk about, oh, it probably doesn't matter. Um, bottle feeding, you know, is not a problem. And um, babies can still get to the breast if they're bottle fed. So, um, mm-hmm. but, you know, then the idea, of course, with cup feeding was that babies would preserve their suckling with with breastfeeding because they wouldn't get sort of that sucking satisfaction from a bottle. So there is some talk in the study about um, babies sort of developing uh, a suckling action more with um, cup feeding and also facilitating the ability to self-regulate and demand food, which I think has been a hot topic. There have been a lot of studies relating to obesity and um, to learning to, to regulate satiety. So I thought that was interesting. I think cup feeding can be done a couple of different ways. And my understanding is that if you bring the cup to the baby's mouth and just let the fluid touch the baby's lower lip, the baby, a young baby will lap and some babies will sip. But my my impression is that with cup feeding, you don't want to dump it into the baby's mouth and bypass the baby's taking or that control of uh, drinking. Yeah, absolutely. And I think especially for these young or fragile babies, they were very um, cognizant of, you know, being concerned about apnea and the babies um, aspirating. And they didn't have any of those events, but they did talk about having um, adequate training for the staff and the parents so that they all felt competent. Because it really is a skill that takes quite a bit of um, practice before you get good at it. The first few times I tried this, I uh, spilled a lot. Um, right. It can to be balance it in just the right place. Right, and it can be hard to hold the baby at the same time. A baby who's has his or her her arms flailing, and yeah. that's one of the reasons why I think cup feeding is difficult to teach a family where the baby is going to go home the next day, like a, like a two day old, because the parents are so overwhelmed. And if the baby's not nursing, especially if it's their first baby, they're so sort of freaked out and um, confused and disorganized that many parents don't feel comfortable even doing finger feeding with a feeding tube, you know, or putting a feeding tube at the breast. They just want what they know is, typical, which is to use a bottle for supplementation. So, Although, there, we, I was just talking yesterday um, about this with somebody who's helping a hospital um, going through a baby-friendly um, process, and part of that is teaching people how to prepare formula and teaching people how to bottle feed because, you know, this nurse was telling me in her experience, even somebody who's formula-fed her three children, sometimes when you talk about pacing and um, positioning has a lot to learn about bottle feeding. People often do it in such a way so that they're just, you know, holding the bottle upside down and just drowning the baby, I feel like. Right. Oh, I've seen that too, where the baby doesn't have much control. Yeah. And that gets into all those studies about, you know, increased weight gain, even for babies who are given expressed breast milk in a bottle because mm-hmm. they take higher volumes at one time and don't have as much control over how much they're taking as compared compared to breastfeeding. So. Mm-hmm. The only other thing that I wanted to share about the study, because I thought it was interesting, was um, there were 
babies who dropped out of the study either because they got sick or because of noncompliance. And I, when I first started reading, thought, oh, surely it will be these babies who were being cup-fed where the parents found it too difficult and were noncompliant. But there were actually um, 26 babies um, eliminated for noncompliance from the cup-feeding group, but 21 from the bottle-feeding group. So Interesting. Know, huh. it, was, it was about even, actually. Very interesting. Huh. Well, thanks for sharing that. It's something that we could talk about more in the future to see really what is happening with cup feeding um, in the United States. Yeah, yeah. And you have a really interesting topic to bring up today. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about a phenomenon that's been gaining some attention on the Internet called the Sudden Unexpected Postnatal Collapse Syndrome, which appears to be associated with skin-to-skin. And since we're strongly advocating skin-to-skin postpartum to optimize breastfeeding success, this is a topic that needs to be addressed um, by breastfeeding um, specialists, but also by hospitals. So this article that I want to discuss is a summary that's that's authored by two major researchers in the skin-to-skin field, Susan Ludington-Ho and Kathy Morgan. This article is called The Infant Assessment and Reduction of Sudden Unexpected Postnatal Collapse Risk During Skin-to-Skin Contact, and it was published this year in 2014 in Newborn and Infant Nursing Reviews Journal. So skin-to-skin, for people listening, is also known as kangaroo care, and this is recommended by the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American College of OBGYN, the Center for Disease Control in the United States, and the American Academy of Family Physicians. And it's also it's also recommended currently in the neonatal resuscitation guidelines. We know now that skin-to-skin is not um, only associated with preemies, but it's also very beneficial for term-healthy infants. We know that skin-to-skin is associated with health benefits like improved infant temperature stabilization because it it appears that having the baby against mom's chest or even dad's chest and then covered with a blanket will bring that baby's temperature up more than a radiant heater. Um, it also is a, skin-to-skin is also associated with prevention of hypoglycemia and it's associated with improved initiation, duration, and exclusivity of breastfeeding. And women who do a lot of skin-to-skin seem to have enhanced uh, breast milk production. In some countries, though, it's not simply a benefit, but it's actually a requirement to prevent hypoglycemia and hypothermia. In our country, we can use radiant warmers. We can give different types of you know, additional sugars to babies. But in countries where those resources are not available, this is how babies survive, is by being put directly to the chest in moms. So the neonatal resuscitation guidelines now say that a term infant who has good muscle tone and cries or breathes spontaneously should not be separated from the mother, but should be dried and placed skin to skin with mom, and both should be covered with dry linen. But a lot of hospitals still don't do skin to skin after birth. Um, and at all during hospitalization because they don't really have the knowledge on how to do that and they don't have a strategy to practice it, like when would they put the baby to skin to skin, and they don't, they probably don't have a means of assessing the infant on mom's chest. And so incorporating skin to skin in the hospital takes some degree of organization. 
In fact, that's something that we've been working on in our hospital, how to make sure that babies are put skin to skin, how to document it, how long, because some people, you know, will think, well, I'll put the baby skin to skin. Okay, good. You did that for two minutes. Great. We'll document you did that and then you're done. And it's much more I've than that. that for so, sure. so how do you define yeah. it? You know, there's so much, really, it's, it's kind of a big procedure to incorporate it in the hospital. For sure. I think a lot of hospitals are struggling with a barrier that's related to staffing. And normally in the past, especially if mom's had a C-section and she goes to recovery, the babies have been taken away to nurses who are comfortable taking care of babies. And the recovery room nurses were not um, traditionally taking care of babies. And they sometimes feel overwhelmed with an additional responsibility of keeping an eye on that baby while mom is possibly still medicated. Right. And that's and the skin-to-skin thing is huge because it does require um, observation. So this article is basically a review of this condition, of the sudden unexpected postnatal collapse. And the authors have a proposed checklist for safe positioning, which we'll talk about. Um, So this condition, the sudden unexpected postnatal collapse, is defined um, as a healthy appearing neonate with an APGAR of eight or more at five minutes who unexpectedly becomes apneic and needs full resuscitation. And the infant may appear cyanotic and unconscious. And the incidence has been recorded at anywhere from 2.6 to 38 cases per 100,000. Um, there are a couple studies that, this, that these authors cite. And one study um, broke down the incidence as one-third occurring during the first two hours postpartum, another third of them occurring somewhere between two hours and 24 hours postpartum, and another third occurring in the first week postpartum. So that's kind of scary. And then, yeah. And then another study reported that 73% occur in the first two hours postpartum. So the emphasis for hospitals is to provide close surveillance for the first two hours postpartum. And one thing that the authors point out is that it is safer for, even though we're talking about this and it sounds scary, it is safer for infants to be put skin to skin with mom than to have them be put prone anywhere else and not with mom. The risk factors associated with this condition for babies who are put skin to skin are situations where mom is obese, um, mom is is a a primip and doesn't really have any experience on how to hold the baby properly and no one's sort of advising mom on making sure that positioning is proper. If mom is too uh, sedated and um, is falling asleep with the baby um, while while skin to skin, if the baby, for some reason, has a decrease in sympathetic nervous system activity, is just basically you know less responsive for some reason, like medication exposure. Um, if the baby's head is totally covered, or if the mouth and nose are occluded for some reason, such as you know the mouth and nose not being turned to the side or the head being turned to the side. Mm-hmm. Sideline breastfeeding position seems to be associated with this unsupervised breastfeeding, and moms who are skin-to-skin who are not being observed by a nurse. And then if moms are lying on their backs and the babies are skin-to-skin, it seems like that's an independent risk factor as opposed to mom being somewhat upright, like at a 30 to 45 degree angle, that seems to be safer. Hmm. And then um, they also say that maternal or parental distractions, like everyone's watching TV or you know, on their on their phones, their computers, 
or visiting with other people and not really paying attention to what the baby's doing on mom's chest or dad's chest because dad could be doing skin to skin as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and also they say that bed sharing is, is a risk factor for this. So the authors describe an assessment tool that they encourage hospitals to use while that nurses would use in the hospital um, in order to assess that baby during those first two hours after birth. And it's, and um, the acronym is RAPP, R-A-P-P. The R stands for respiratory effort, and um, the baby should be observed for his or her respiratory rate, shooting 440 to 60 um, breaths per minute. And the baby should not appear to be um, like wheezing or having any um, increased work of breathing. The baby, um, so the, and then the, so our APP, the A is for activity. Um, babies are typically in four different states of activity, either the baby's sleeping or the baby's in a quiet, alert state where the baby is just obviously awake but just looking around or just being very still. Babies can also be active alert where they're moving about and babies can be crying. And their suggestion is that when the baby is in a quiet, alert state, make sure the baby is responding to tactile stimulation. So if the baby looks quiet, alert, but the baby does not respond at all, the baby should be taken off the chest and looked at carefully. Mm-hmm. Um, P stands for perfusion, and this this refers to the infant's skin color. So if the baby looks pink, great. If the baby looks pale in certain areas, um, make sure to put blankets over um, mom and baby, make sure that baby is totally skin to skin, meaning chest to chest, um, against mom. And if the baby is looking pale or blue, the baby should be taken off and put under a radiant warmer and be evaluated. And then the second P stands for position, and this stands for the position of the head. So the head should be upright and moved to one side, and the neck should be erect and not bent in one in one way. And they also recommend that the extremities be flexed. The extremities should not be straight, and they should not be flaccid. So if a nurse is not sure if the extremities are flaccid, um, the nurse should check for recoil of the limbs. And if there's no recoil and the limbs appear flaccid, the baby should be taken off and assessed. Mm-hmm. So the American Academy of Pediatrics Committee on Medical Liability and Risk Management recommends that all babies be monitored by a hospital employee, not a relative, for the first two hours postpartum. And if mom falls asleep during skin to skin, the baby should be taken off and put in the bassinet unless there's someone else there to monitor them both or maybe dad could do skin to skin while dad stays awake if mom has fallen asleep. So there is a a nonprofit called the United States Institute for Kangaroo Care, which um, I think the authors are very involved with. And they have a checklist that hospitals can purchase either as a poster or index cards. And it, the checklist is really useful to remind everyone what what is safe for skin to skin. And the checklist includes things like making sure the face can be seen, that the head is in a sniffing position, the nose and mouth are not covered, the head is turned to one side, the neck is straight, uh, the baby's fully chest to chest, the legs are flexed, and that mom's not flying is mom's not lying flat on her back, et cetera. So that's a nice little checklist that not only can be used by the nurses, but families can be taught to use that checklist so that when they go home and they're doing skin to skin, they know what the proper positioning is uh, for the baby. 
The other thing is that that website is great because the website has videos that parents can watch about safe skin to skin. So not only would they read the checklist, but they can actually look at the video and see what is proper positioning for skin to skin. So I encourage all of our listeners to visit the website, which is kangaroocareusa.org. And um, in addition to the checklist, they have some other um, marvelous resources, like uh, they show different types of wraps that people can use to keep their baby safely skin to skin. And they also have some sample hospital policies and protocols and toolkits for hospitals. So I think this is a topic that um, all hospitals need to pay closer attention to because there are periodic sudden deaths in the hospital. We've had a couple in our hospital over the last 10 years and people sort of wonder, well, you know, what really happened? What, you know, what, what what was this about? And after I read this, I thought, well, maybe that would be the explanation for those deaths is this condition in that the baby just wasn't properly positioned as opposed to being, you know, placed on their backs in a radiant warmer or in a bassinet you know, we're trying to encourage these babies to be skin to skin, but obviously it's, you know, the positioning is different. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I've had certainly um, a number of experiences where the pediatrics department has um, done some QI project often on the regular peds floor and they're going around trying to make sure everyone has safe sleep practices, you know, taking the, pillows out of the cribs for the toddlers who are, you know, whoever's staying in the hospital and they come around and are terrified to see babies and moms who have fallen asleep together, sometimes skin to skin, but more often I see them, the swaddled baby tucked in the mom's armpit and they're both asleep. And so there's certainly a, a lot of different things happening in hospitals, be it babies are not getting any skin to skin because they're constantly in the bassinet or they're you know, maybe doing a fantastic job and they're doing skin to skin with great supervision or a lot of places that are just sort of doing whatever. Right. There's a lot of baby tacos. There's a lot of, you know, wrapping of different in different blankets and snugglies and all kinds of things that, you know, companies make to keep Mm -hmm. the babies warm, whereas the babies should really just be skin to skin. So, yeah, I think we have a lot of work. I mean, I think that, um, you know, we clearly have, gone along or getting along with uh, the baby-friendly steps. Hospitals are starting to incorporate those. But skin-to-skin is a little tricky, and so I think the education is definitely needed. Yeah, there's a lot of education to be done. I was um, at this documentary that came out a, a little while ago called The Milky Way, and one of the parts of the movie showed um, a hospital in Germany where they have a regular, like, looks like queen-size flat bed for the mom and baby and the dad to stay in while they're in the hospital recovering from um, the birth. And they encourage co-sleeping. It's so different. Um, yeah, it's very different. From and, where we are here. Yep, a lot of countries uh, do co-sleeping. And um, they probably look at the United States and say, they're crazy over there. Well, it was critical to human survival for a long, long time. For, Absolutely. For, so, for safety and warmth. Yep, trying to find a, a way to to keep those babies safe while we're trying to get them skin to skin is is a challenge, and I'm so excited to hear about those resources. Yeah, yeah, definitely check it out. Well, good. Well, that sounds great, and um, you're going to come visit me in Wisconsin in a couple of weeks, and maybe we can 
we can record our next podcast right here in the old podcast studio. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. All right. Take care. See you soon. Bye. Bye. If you have any interest in the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine or any questions or comments about this podcast, please email us at abm at b as in boy, f as in frank, med.org. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in a few weeks.